Hi everyone, welcome to this next edition of our Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome Diane Coyle, who's co-director of the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge University. Above and beyond that, she's had a very long and distinguished career in public service, including uh, being vice chair of the BBC Trust, a member of the Competition Commission as well. Diane, many, many thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Diane has got a new book out, which I'll come back on to later on, but it's worth saying, Markets, States and People, was a serendipitous idea, if only because it strikes me that the central thrust is that economic ideas are the product of their historical context. And boy, you're being proven right every day at the moment, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly getting plenty of context at the moment. <laughs> but I want to go back to, I think there's a book before, you're so prolific, I find it hard to keep track, uh, the book on GDP that you wrote. And I think it's a fantastic book, but I have to say I, I finished it feeling slightly depressed by the fact that we just keep getting very big things wrong. As far as I, as I read it, Back in the UK in 1976, the figures might not have been accurate. When Europe was panicking about the state of the US economy in the late 1990s, again, things might have been mismeasured. And of course, crucially, when we were discussing bailouts for the banks uh, in the early part of this century, it turns out that we'd exaggerated the scale of the financial services industry. Should we trust any of this economic data at all? It's a a really good question. People think that um, economic data, they're sort of natural objects and you're trying to do the same kind of thing as a natural scientist, you know, measure the depth of the river or the speed of the air current or something of that kind. But they're not at all. They're analytical constructs. And the way that they are put together is extremely complex and subject to revision. People don't think very much about it. We take it as part of the furniture, just part of the natural environment of the economy. And yet um, people therefore put put too much weight on what they're getting out of them. So I think you can take messages out of the economic statistics, but it it ought to be much more cautiously done than than we typically do. And you see newspapers obsessing over a 0.2% change in GDP in a quarter. Well, you know, that that was in the good old days when we had small quarterly changes. and, and that's, that's so far inside the margin of error that it's meaningless and, and it could be no change or it could be an increase. So we tell these stories about the UK economy going to the dogs in the late 1970s, about how fantastic the contribution of the financial sector was in the early 2000s, and they are completely over-egged. But, I mean, you can sort of forgive ordinary people for getting this slightly wrong, for not realising that we're talking about numbers within the margin of error or that this is complicated. But it seems to me that, you know, professional economists take these things too seriously. Funding decisions hang on what a country's GDP looks like. And there doesn't seem to be much in the way of humility about these numbers in the profession, is there? I agree about that. The people who put the numbers together, the statisticians, are completely aware of all of these all of these issues but for economists and particularly during the computer age it's become so easy to just download a gdp series and not think about how it's constructed that we have forgotten all of this ancient wisdom that was a part of the the um, fabric of the discussion when the gdp and the national accounts were first created in the 1940s and 50s in fact um economics courses uh, pay far too little attention to how data are put together and what they even mean, how you determine the classifications. So it's not just the history that we've been talking about, it's also how do we understand how the economy is changing because of digitalization. When, when the classifications that we have or the price indices that we put together 
don't allow us to understand fully the nature of the transformation that's happening. Yeah, I mean, there are two things I think that you're, you've been particularly vocal about when it comes to this. And the first is, as you say, the importance of digital activity. And the second is work done primarily by women, particularly unpaid work at home and the implications that has for the economy. Now, I'd like you just to talk about both those things briefly, but it seems to me that actually one of the many things that COVID has done is perhaps shine a really bright light on both of those things, hasn't it? I agree with you. If you take the unpaid work in the home example, this is a point that people, particularly feminist scholars, have been making right since the dawn of the GDP era. But it it gets overlooked because it's not in the figures that we look at every quarter or every month. And of course, it isn't that the work done in the home is not economically valuable. It is incredibly economically valuable. And it substitutes for things that we can buy in the market. Having accepted that, you then need to think about what the figures mean. And the increase in GDP and productivity that we saw through the 1960s and 1970s, quite a lot of that reflected women moving out of unpaid work at home into paid work in the market and purchasing things like ready meals or microwaves or or, um, people to come and do their cleaning and childcare for them. So the market economy expanded, but the amount of valuable economic activity expanded much less. And that affects how you think about growth and how you think about productivity. Um, You know, as you say, a lot of people have now been forced to go back into their homes and do more of that activity themselves. So that lesson is brought home very forcefully alongside the fact that the people who are going out to paid work, the, the key workers, as we call them, actually tend to be lower paid in lower paid um, activities. So it's really, um, I think, opening a lot of people's eyes to more fundamental thinking about what we mean by economic value and what it means for an economy to go well, what is progress and what should policymakers be trying to deliver us. And if those issues get opened up again by the pandemic, that would be a good outcome. I want to come back to digital in a second, but just as a follow on on this, is, is one of the issues here a lack of diversity amongst the people who make the decisions and in the field of economics as well. I noticed that the European Parliament was uh, complaining the other day that all the key appointments in the EU were of men, even though they were perfectly well-qualified women candidates. Is is part of this just built into the system that there is a sort of uh, maybe a subconscious bias, maybe a conscious bias, but because the decision makers are men, it's it's very hard to shift this system and take into account the work that women do? I feel very passionately about this um, in economics, which has been a kind of boy's own subject, a low proportion of women going into it at any stage, and that pipeline shrinks all the way through academic and non-academic career progression, so that at senior levels, there are really very few women economics professors or senior economists in the banking sector. Uh, And it's not just um, women, it's all kinds of diversity. It's um, members of ethnic minorities, it's people from the working classes, um, more and more economic students coming from private schools, not state schools. And you're, you're not doing good social science if your uh, own field is so unrepresentative of the population that you think you're investigating and, and doing research on. Um, so that's certainly part of the issue um, in, in just thinking, thinking in different ways about what are the questions that we need to answer as a society and what kind of, <clears throat> what kind of evidence would help us address those. So I, I, I agree, I think that's really important. The economics profession has made huge strides. Current president of the World Economic Society, American Economic Association, have in the past 12 to 18 months absolutely recognised the problem and started to act on it, although I think it will take time to address. That's really interesting. I mean, uh, it seems to me me that one possible response by a traditional economist would be, this is a science, so actually your perspective doesn't matter. I think the science bit comes in in the way that you treat um, evidence and uh, 
frame hypotheses and apply statistical tests. The diversity bit comes in in terms of the questions that you're asking and what you think is important. And um, there's actually a lot of science about the importance of diverse cognitive styles and experiences in problem solving. A lot of it done at the Santa Fe Institute. And I think it's pretty compelling evidence about the importance of diversity in all ways to address societal challenges. The other, the other strand, the other missing bit is that GDP and figures like it don't pick up the scale of digital activity. Can you just explain what the problem is to the lay listener? If you look around over the past, I don't know, 10 years, since the advent of smartphones and 3G and always on internet and apps and everything, the way we lead our lives as individuals and the way businesses operate and the kinds of businesses that succeed have completely changed. And it's not captured well by economic statistics because the categories don't include digital There's lots of data that we don't track, including data about data. People talk about it as being so important. We don't know how much there is or what prices to attach to to data. So um, it's such a big structural change in the economy, I think on a par with the invention of printing or steam power and electricity, that the statistics uh, haven't, haven't caught up. And it's changing the way that we interpret the statistics that we do have. So for example, if you take the worry about productivity that's concerning everybody at the moment, you can think of lots of good reasons why productivity is low in Britain, underinvestment, demographic change, uh, hangover from the financial crisis. So there are good reasons, but there are also measurement reasons. We did some work recently looking at prices of telecom services and the official index shows no change over the past 10 years or so. And that's a bit absurd when you think about how much our own use of telecom services has changed, Mm -hmm. the volume of data that you can get, the transmission speeds, the quality of calls, and and, um, and so on. If you calculate the price index in a a way that reflects the changes, um, it's actually fallen substantially, possibly up to as much as 90% over 10 years. Uh, Office of National Statistics last week said um, they would adopt some of these changes and it will lead to an increase in how they measure real GDP and productivity. We don't know how big that will be. It might be very small, but that's one example of something that hasn't been captured. Another is that we're all doing all kinds of things at home pre-pandemic, like our own banking, um, writing open source software, posting funny videos that entertain people so they don't have to buy newspapers and magazines anymore. So there are all kinds of substitutions out of the market into activity in the home, digitally mediated. That's the kind of reverse of that phenomenon of women going out into the paid workplace. Um, and it may be that all of this is leading to some understatement of real GDP and, and productivity. I, I think we need to have a, a big conceptual rethink of what we mean by productivity in an economy where there are relatively few products and mostly its services, because you don't count the productivity of a management consultant by the number of pages in their report, which is the kind of construct we have at the moment. So in a sense, you know, what we used to call a phone is now essentially a computer. So to say that there hasn't been an increase in the in productivity in terms of what we're purchasing, what we're owning, is just fundamentally misleading. It's a computer, it's a camera, it's a map, it's a diary, it's a calculator, all of these things. So all of the all of those are things we're not buying now. I mean the one thing and this is this is my 2020 hindsight, I suppose, reading your book post-referendum rather than pre-referendum. But the one thing I thought was a bit missing from the GDP book was the fact that it misses wide disparities within countries that you you know you attach a number to a country and if that number keeps going up it's very easy to come to the potentially spurious conclusion that everyone's doing all right 
because GDP is growing. Is that something else that concerns you? Yes. And I, I wrote the first edition of the book in 2014. So um, we had not been alerted by Thomas Piketty's book then to the importance of inequality, uh, whether that's between individuals or um, where those individuals are. So, so regional spatial inequality as well. And it was a huge oversight. It's clearly driven lots of important political change in the UK. Um, we, until recently, did worse than many other countries in having subnational economic statistics at all, although ONS has made great strides in, in recent years. So before the referendum, you would actually have been, um, you know, quite a statistics nerd to figure out what was happening in different regions of the UK to living standards and incomes. And in a sense, because it wasn't part of the statistical picture, uh, nobody noticed what was happening until you know, quite late in the day. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think it was just after the referendum when Andy Haldane gave a speech, I think in Cardiff, uh, which he sort of produced some data on inequalities that everyone really sat up and took notice and thought, gosh, why, why hadn't we noticed this beforehand? I suppose we have to turn to COVID because it's such a big deal in terms of the economy. And I suppose all the questions I ask you about COVID are going to be slightly unfair because we don't know the answers as yet. But the first thing that intrigues me, and I really hope you can explain this to me, is why doesn't debt seem to matter anymore? And, and and if it does matter, when does it matter? I mean, I, I sort of get the point that interest rates are low and so debt is cheaper, but we seem to be talking about it in a way that would have been simply unthinkable prior to this year. Is that simply because of the scale of the crisis? Or is that because we're thinking about debt and the economy in a different way? It's partly because a lot of the received wisdom about debt was overdone in the first place. Debt matters when the interest rate is, is high and the economy is not growing very quickly, so it's hard to repay those interest payments. So there's no absolute number. And many economists thought that austerity as justified by needing to reduce debt was overdone anyway, even before the pandemic, because interest rates on government debt have been low for some years now. Given that we've got this astonishing, absolutely unprecedented economic crisis, there's also the, the issue about the counterfactual. And if you didn't use public spending and therefore debt to try to underpin the economy a bit now, actually, it would be counterproductive, even in terms of debt, because the economic collapse would be much bigger. And just through sheer uh, unemployment payments and, and crisis management the government would be spending more anyway so it's a good gamble to spend a lot take on more debt invest that in things that will pay a return and you might therefore um, get the growth rate higher but looking forward i mean it's hard to be certain because of course the government hasn't yet started talking about how we might think about starting to pay for all this debt but going forward it does seem that even in the conservative party in government at the moment there is a, a recognition of the fact that actually yeah, we're going to have to control the debt, but we don't have to start panicking about paying large chunks of it off as yet. Would you think that's fair? And would you agree with it? I do agree. It's absolutely too early to start panicking about it. And, you know, to be honest, politicians like spending money. It makes them popular. So I can understand that lots of MPs would be perfectly happy with it. There does come a point after a crisis like this when you do have to decide who bears the burden, because a lot of debt will not be repaid. A lot of the companies that are getting supported will go out of business. And that uh, that debt will have to be allocated. Is it going to be paid by taxpayers, by banks? Um, what about the individuals themselves? What are their responsibilities? Another way that debt is often tackled post-crisis is by inflation, which seems very distant now, but that might come back in a couple of years' time or five years' time. And that's a very arbitrary way of getting rid of the debt burden. It tends to be very uh, regressive. It falls more heavily on people with low incomes, uh, don't have bargaining power in the workplace, don't, you know, don't have access to savings that allow them to tackle with the inflation. So I think it's important eventually to have that kind of discussion about 
who will bear the cost. But it's way too early to start thinking about it now. I mean, we hear, you know, every day when you turn on the radio or the television, you hear this talk about people's attitude towards the economy, attitudes towards each other have shifted because of the pandemic and that we need to find new ways of doing things. Are you one of those people that believes that this will really happen? Or do you think that actually, you know, particularly if we end up with a, an unemployment crisis and tricky economic times to, to come, that people will revert back to the way they were, were beforehand and be less fulsome in asking for pay rises for key workers and the like? Do you think this is a, a shift in the way we do economics? I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to hear what you think about it, because I think there's political uncertainty, even more than economic uncertainty about that. There are lots of bits of evidence suggesting that people uh, do want things to be different, whether it's green recovery or higher wages for key workers or whatever form it takes. On the other hand, we've got a conservative government with all of their instincts about the role of the state, rolling back the private sector, uh, sorry, rolling back the state and favouring the private sector. So I, I don't know how that will play out. I think it will depend on the extent to which the public broadly does want to see investment in clean air and new green technologies, even though that might involve uh, short-term sacrifice from consumption. So I think there's an opportunity. I don't know whether we're going to grasp it, and I think that depends on political leadership. What do you think? Well, I'm not even going to begin to start guessing. I just don't understand politics anymore is, is the bottom line. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, I, I sense that there are divisions within the governing Conservative Party over this. Whether or not they'll come out in the open or not is anyone's guess. I mean, it's very, very hard to predict how this parliament is going to work at the moment, though it does strike me that an 80-seat majority sound feels a lot smaller in side number 10 now than it did in the middle of December last year, given how assertive backbenchers have been. So we'll just have to see. But within the profession, within the economics profession, do you detect a shift partly brought on by this crisis? Does the prevailing orthodoxy amongst professional economists change because of events? I think recent events, the pandemic has cemented a change that had already started in economics. The high tide of free market economics, markets can do everything. In the academic world, that was that was a long time ago now. And there's a lot of environmental economics. Uh, there's a lot of interest in um, institutional aspects, in education and public services. So uh, actually, I think the real shock for economists was the combination, the double whammy of the financial crisis and the Brexit vote, and particularly the Brexit vote, because the profession was 90 plus percent united in saying leaving the European Union would harm the economy possibly significantly. And it was a shock to everybody that this economic argument carried so little weight with the public. And, and I think that was a real wake up call. And there have been um, much, uh, much more initiative since then to ensure that there's good communication about economic research. So that in, in the few weeks since the pandemic struck, the economics profession in the UK has come together uh, and broadly um, created this fantastic website called the Economics Observatory, which tries to answer in a very straightforward way questions that the public policymakers might have about pandemic and the economy and say what we know from the evidence and say what the gaps are and we don't know and um, I, I couldn't imagine that of having happened you know ten, 10 years ago so the short answer is yes I think the profession has changed but I'm not sure it's only the pandemic that's done it. I mean this is something that's very close to your heart isn't it I believe that your CBE was awarded on the basis of a contribution to the public understanding of economics so this is something you, you've long been interested in but just talk about the economic observatory to start with because it is a fascinating initiative and I'd recommend everyone to go to the website there's some really brilliant stuff in there and if I can understand it anyone can understand the economics on there. Where do you how do you decide on the questions you answer? Uh, 
some of it was a bunch of people sitting around thinking about the obvious questions. You know, some of them we've been discussing today. But there's also a write-in box so you can submit questions. And we are now at the stage of trying to respond to the ones that get submitted by the public. And you might not want to answer this question, but you know, sometimes at the UK in a changing Europe, we find that we get submissions in from academics that with the best will in the world are almost impossible to make comprehensible outside the UK. Do you struggle sometimes with economists trying to get them to write in a way that non-economists will be able to read and grasp? Less than I might have feared, actually. The ones that I've been editing, they're pretty pretty clear. People seem to have taken to heart the message about the importance of, of communicating which is really encouraging. That's excellent. And the Bennett Institute at Cambridge does, is, is meant to do something similar as well, isn't it? Act as an interface between the academy and what we like to call the real world. Yes, and um, we try to make sure that the research that we do is focused on and shaped by policy questions and the interactions that we, we have with policymakers uh, in the UK and elsewhere. So it's, it's not that the research isn't important, but it's that you ensure that you're asking the right kind of questions when you're doing your research. And answering them in a way that people can actually grasp. Yes, so as well as academic papers, we have a lot of blogs and policy reports that um, sh- the idea is that they're, they're accessible to anybody. Do, do you think economists have a particular problem to overcome? Because it wasn't just that 90% of the profession was pro-remain during the referendum, but it's also the fact that, of course, we had those well-publicised economic forecasts, not least the short-term economic forecast that the Treasury put out in April before the referendum. And that has become the sort of first port of call for the Brexiters saying it was all made up, it was project fear now. Do you think there's a particular distrust of economists because of that experience? I think that one forecast by the Treasury was incredibly damaging and it was clearly something that was informed by the political context and, and what the Chancellor at the time wanted. And and it was an outlier. Most forecasts are not going to tell you what happened. There's too much uncertainty. And the things that you're forecasting are responding to your forecasts. So it's nothing like the weather. It's as if raindrops had a mind of their own when you're trying to do the weather forecast. And um, so you're only ever, the numbers that you put out in the forecast are only ever the single most likely outcome, but actually the range of possible outcomes is really wide. And it depends on all kinds of factors like policy changes or how people feel about going shopping when they get up in the morning. Um, and actually, given that, that uncertainty, on most of the time, forecasts aren't too bad. Um, where they become bad is when there's a big decision point or turning point, like the peak of a, um, a boom or the trough of a recession. And nobody's ever going to do that well. Have you been taken aback by the way some politicians have talked about economic forecasts? We've had quite a bit of experience over the last few years of government ministers disowning the forecast that their own civil servants have uh, produced. Does that, has that surprised you? Has there been anything like that that you can remember before? It's a... Uh... Something that's certainly happened a lot more recently. Uh, I started out my career in the civil service in the 1980s, and one can't imagine at that time anything like that possibly happening. I don't think it's just economics, though. I think it's a broader tendency among um, ministers not to trust their civil servants. And I think it's deeply unfair. There are many things that you can criticise the civil service for, but every everyone I've met in the civil service over all of these years has known that it's their duty to try to... Uh, serve their country but serve their minister so this is something that predates the current government obviously 
and um, probably dates back to the Blair years, something you might know better than I do. But I, I think it's become corrosive, this, this possibility of challenging the, the impartiality of the, of the civil service or the intended impartiality of the civil service. And what do you think, if anything, can be done to sort of restore faith in experts, insofar as faith in experts has, has declined? Because my experience is that the public still have faith in experts, whatever anyone might say. But certainly amongst policy makers is there there things are there things we should be thinking about doing to sort of rebuild those links and rebuild that trust or have we just moved to a new phase in politics where anything goes golly that's a really hard question (laughs) so the public clearly does trust experts still it's politicians they don't trust politicians only trust the experts who give them the answer that they want so there's something there's been this sort of dysfunctional vicious circle between politicians and advisors over time and like any vicious circle it's very hard to figure out how you would break into it and turn it into the virtuous into the virtuous circle instead um so i I don't have an answer um, but a lot of people are thinking about exactly this relationship of expertise to political decision making i mean again it's nothing new if you go back to daniel bell and post-industrial society um he's got a section where he talks about the inherent uh, tensions that arise between the need for technocrats in, in complex technical societies and the increasing populism of, of democracies of the day yeah and i mean sort of wrapped up in that brexit referendum was a sort of hostility towards what were seen as unaccountable unelected sources of expertise or of power which i think that all feeds into but i suppose that we turn it on the head the other aspect of this brings us back to the public understanding of economics which is you know just how well your average person grasps Economics. Do you think economics should be a core subject in secondary school? I mean, here again, we see the disparity. I dug up the fingers. I think, what were the figures? One in six boys studies economics at school, one in 17 girls. Yeah, girls um, tend to think, well, I think all teenagers tend to think economics is just about money. And um, for whatever reason, the boys are more interested in the money than the girls are. And it's a, a misapprehension anyway. Economists in universities tend to think, tend to prefer undergraduates not to have the economics A-level. Um, they think it's too too narrow compared to what economists think we actually do. But to get that kind of empirically based analytical way of thinking um, spread through the curriculum would be very desirable, I think. And not to mention some personal financial literacy, understanding what a percentage interest rate is and uh, why you shouldn't buy extended warranties on your washing machine and that kind of thing. That would be a, a very good thing to introduce into schools. And finally, this is meant to be a sort of gift of a question, so I hope it is. If you could make one change to the way we measure the economy, what would it be? Only one change? Um, yeah. I've got a, a career's worth of work um, to bring in here. The one, the one change would be to move away from only thinking about the short term in our statistics. GDP is about what happens this quarter or this year. We need to start thinking about the the trade-offs over time and the way that what we're doing this year affects the possibilities of the future. This is most acute in the environment and measuring the natural resource use that goes into today's GDP. But it's also about how much we're investing in education, how much we're investing in preventive healthcare rather than patching people up. So it's having a national balance sheet um, alongside the everyday way of thinking about the economy. And that's the one biggest change I'd want to make. But, it's, but it sounds like you're talking about a balance sheet that stretches 30, 40 years into the future. Yes, well, you have to value it and you capture the infinite future by the valuations that you use in that balance sheet. So it's not like no, no everyday 
statistics, it is making a judgment about future future actions and future values. But we're never going to ha- achieve any kind of sustainability if we don't do that. Well, good luck with your struggle for that one. But listen, this has been, firstly, I say it's been utterly fascinating. But secondly, I'm feeling rather pleased with myself because I understood everything. But Diane, thanks ever so much for taking the time to do this. That was really, really interesting. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.